Welcome to Informed Aging, a podcast about health, health, and hard decisions for older adults. I'm Robin Roundtree. I spent six years as a family caregiver and now work at the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center. With me is my co-host, Edith Gendron, Chief of Operations for Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center, a positive approach to care certified trainer and consultant, and a former family caregiver. She has well over 20 years of experience in the industry. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong to us, not our wonderful employers and sponsors. So if you want to get mad, get mad at us and not at them. Before making any significant changes in you or your person's life, please consult your own experts. Today, we're once again talking to our expert, Dr. Rosemary Laird, We're going to cover seniors in isolation and how to improve your doctor's visit. Stay right here. Senior Helpers is the only home care agency offering a revolutionary new way to approach senior care, the Life Profile Assessment. This data-based app is a crucial tool in helping seniors age safely and successfully at home. Combined with our proven in-home care programs and trained caregivers, Senior Helper's Life Profile is leading the way to better outcomes for our clients. For more information, log on to SeniorHelpers.com. For over 37 years, the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center, ADRC, has served as a Central Florida-based grassroots nonprofit and community resource center. They are dedicated to providing support and hope for families and individuals caring for someone they love who is living with Alzheimer's disease or other dementia-related illnesses. ADRC empowers caregivers with the knowledge, support, skills, and strategies they need to help them confidently prepare for the challenges that lie ahead. To learn more, visit the website adrccares.org. We are jumping back into our conversation with Dr. Rosemary Laird to review. She's the chief medical officer of MyMemoryClinic.org, a clinical associate professor in the Department of Geriatrics at the Florida State University School of Medicine, principal investigator for ClinCloud Research in Vieira, Florida, and the founder of the family caregiver support company, Navigating Aging Needs. Now, she's a recognized expert in diagnosing and caring for patients with Alzheimer's disease, and she spent 20 years as the medical director for two state-designated memory disorder clinics. It's a thrill to continue our conversation with Dr. Rosemary Laird. We're going to pick up as we were discussing isolation and seniors. I'm seeing in otherwise healthy, cognitively healthy adults, older adults, the long-term effects of the isolation absenting COVID. Maybe they didn't contract it, but they've stayed away from everybody. They're living by themselves. And it's almost like, and I'm thinking of my mother-in-law in particular, it's almost like a fear of going out now. It's, she's so used to being home alone with just us, right? We actually had to bribe her. I hope she's not listening. (laughs) To go with us this past weekend for a fairly long jaunt. Um, And it worked. We did. And, you know, she was brighter and happier. But all of that to say, isolation and its effects. I'm seeing real changes. Are they valid? Is it valid what I'm seeing? Or am I just making it up in my head? (laughs) No, I don't think you're making it up in your head, Edith. Even pre-COVID, 
There was a strong body of research that had identified that older adults who are isolated, and they measure, say, by knowing how many outside encounters or conversations an individual would have with people, either family members or non, over the course of a certain amount of time. There was plenty of evidence that people who are isolated live less long lives mm. and their lives are less quality filled. So isolation was already known as a risk factor for increasing frailty before COVID. Now with COVID, you bring the point about fear into it because very often in pre-COVID times, it wasn't fear that kept people isolated. It was often more mobility issues or perhaps a developing cognitive problem. COVID, as you mentioned, adds another potential element to that and that's fear or, you know, life's just more complicated and difficult these days with yes. masks and protocols and you know, cues for different things that didn't used to have them and, and admission processes and things like that. Life's a little more difficult right now. But, you know, to the same effect, it's a negative when older adults are more solitary. And there's plenty of evidence that people become more frail more quickly. I mentioned um, in the in earlier part of the conversation that... I like people to report their symptoms quickly <laughs> and get attention quickly, right? Right. Well, left to our own devices, many of us would sit around with a symptom for a very long time before we said anything. Our family doesn't always let us do that, right? Right. If they notice, you know, mom, you haven't been eating breakfast for the last week. You always love my omelets or what have you. You know, that sort of observation gets noticed and acted on when someone else is there to see it. We are sometimes not the best judge mm. <laughs> for ourselves. And, and they do think that that has something to do with this effect of isolation being so negative on an aging person. And there's no pill to take that can cure the result of isolation. You know, it decreases your lifespan, but there's not a quick fix. You've got to be around people. Right. Oh, yeah. There's no quick fix. Most things in older adults don't have a quick no. fix, Robin. I wish geriatric <laughs> training would have been a lot shorter right. if there had been that quick fix. No, but uh, to your point, it, it usually requires uh, a variety of, of approaches and, uh, you know, remedies usually in, in, involve, as I mentioned, you know, you often need other people to help an older adult in that phase of life. And this is a good example. Right. So people who are isolated somehow need other people to help them not be isolated. And where that comes from is, is the challenge. Um, and I know you both know that that's what senior services yes. and the whole world of all the people helping from a community-based standpoint, those are all such vital resources for these people who, for whatever circumstances, end up being a, a solo elder. Yeah, lots of them. And it seems in my limited um, sample size, so to speak, it seems that the longer the isolation occurs, the easier it is to stay there, the harder it is to break. You know, again, back to my poor sainted mother-in-law, she goes to church, which is a really good thing. She speaks to a neighbor 
and there's us. Where once before she was involved in activities and going out to them. And, you know, there might have been something as simple as playing cards, but we all know that's pretty good for the brain too, right? right. She doesn't do that anymore. And so those are the kinds of things we, we worry about. But We did talk about how doctors should listen more to their patients, but can you give some advice to both the older adults and their caregivers on how to have a more successful doctor visit? Oh, sure. <laughs> Take notes, folks. We'll give you 30 seconds. Go get the paper and pencil. I think some of what is important is thinking carefully about who you're speaking with. I have noticed that sometimes there's an acceptance of the doctor who got assigned to you or, you know, whomever just ended up at the bedside. Mm -hmm. And I think one piece of advice is that you do have choice and it would be important to exercise that choice if you haven't found a physician that you feel does listen to you. Okay. Now that's difficult, <laughs> right? to say the least. But especially at the primary care level, I think it's very important. And there usually are through word of mouth at some of your local connections, either church or a neighborhood or a you know, Alzheimer's Disease Resource Center, you know, places in your community where people get advice, typically, especially amongst the older adult population, healthcare, we all joke about, right? That's the top five things to talk about in any yes. conversation. Well, the good doctors in town do tend to become known mm -hmm. amongst those sorts of resources. So I, I apologize that that sounds vague, but end of the day, it sometimes is a, a good route to finding someone who will listen. That being said, there are very, there are more of us than the doctors. So in the situation where you're not sure if you have someone who's a strong listener, and I'm not a primary care provider, I have a lot of sympathy for them. They have tremendous amount of responsibilities on their shoulders. So what we do to make it easier for them at the visits matters. One really important tip is to have everything you want to discuss written down and plan on giving it, using it in your own hand, but give it to the doctor or the nurse practitioner who you're seeing nice. so that they have a copy of it. Some, oftentimes they're putting information into their computer. Well, these days things can get uploaded even if they've taken notes on it or so forth. And that can be very valuable as a reference. So have things written down. We met, that's number one. We mentioned how important medicines are and how often older adults are on more than five. Mm -hmm. I recommend, if at all possible, bringing your bottles to the visit. Okay. There are any number of times that there's a, a, a need for a quick check or wondering about what's going on with the prescription. The bottle is full of so much information that the doctor or nurse practitioner might need that if you can have a, a, a bag that easily transports the bottles, uh, that would be helpful. 
So people sometimes have their medicines in an organizer. That's good. You can bring that along too. But the prescription bottle that says what you took home and then bring back is important. And even if it's the prescription that that doctor wrote, Mm. (laughs) it can still be important to have the bottle there. So that sometimes really makes everything more efficient if you have the medicines with you. Would you take the supplements as well? Yes. Anything you're taking, put that in the bag. That could be a big bag for some people. Right, right. But, <laughs> okay. you know, I think I, it's important because you don't, what you, what you want to try to do, this is another tip, is try to wrap up in the course of the visit the issues you have to a point of being as done as possible. You don't want a lot of, oh, let me check this back at home and I'll call you back or we have to call the pharmacy and this and that. You want to wrap things up as much as possible. So as you're looking at your list, and to be honest, I would be careful to have probably no more than two things on your list as far as what you want to accomplish. That makes sense. And you're going to have to realize the doctor or nurse practitioner may have their own agenda and they're the professional. If, they, if you offer your list and they offer their list and they say my, theirs are more important, you may have to say, okay, I'll schedule another appointment on my way out for these. You know, you, you just have to sort of understand that there has to be a back and forth. But if you've got your questions written and the doctor does decide their agenda trumps yours, you can still have them take the written. Sometimes they can address that in another fashion. Okay. So having it written down, I think, matters. And not coming in with eight things. Not top two. Top two. (laughs) The other piece is as much as possible, I think, for any almost anyone in healthcare these days, have someone with you. The buddy system worked in kindergarten and it works for a variety of different phases of life. Medical care is, is complex. The logistics are complex. The topics are complex. I generally recommend people have someone with them. It's not saying you can't, you know, intellectually manage it. It's just saying, two ears listening to the same information and two heads processing it are better than one. And it's very common. They've actually done studies of how it's sort of the telephone game of what is said in an exam room and what is heard by the patient after Mm -hmm. they leave is often there's a, a differential there. It doesn't always track that nurse practitioner said, you're going to do this. And 10 minutes later, the patient heard this. And so having two people is generally a good idea, especially if you're heading to an emergency room or some kind of test and procedure at the hospital. I generally tell people these days, you can go to your doctor's office alone if everything's sort of a root of, of a routine nature but I would never go to anything emergent or to any, you know, test or procedure alone. It's just not, it, it, it doesn't leave you in as much potential control over knowing everything that went on and 
you know, having a good accounting for everything. Right. And I know that's hard for some adult children to hear because they're like, oh, mom has so many appointments and I always have to be there, but it is for the best. Yeah. Now, if I, if I may, you just brought up adult children and I want to add a couple of additional points. So some of us uh, are going to a health, a, a physician visit or to the hospital as an advocate for or caregiver for another individual. And in those situations, there's a couple other things you may want to think about. So most of the time, the physical presence of a person gives you some permission to talk about that person, but technically it may not. So mm-hmm. you, if you are a power of attorney for someone, you probably want to keep that documentation available if you're escorting them to a surger, outpatient surgery. Or the doctor's offices will usually have that on in their files. So it doesn't have to be something you take all the time. But if you're going to a new location for care, having that available is, is going to make things a lot easier. Uh, more straightforward. And it's protecting your loved ones so that they know who they should be speaking with. As an adult uh, caregiver of of a loved one, uh, at some point in time, you may have a difference of opinion about your loved one (laughs) and their health. And so, for example, if you're going to a doctor's appointment and you feel that the answer to a question of how are you feeling <laughs> or how's your, you know, how's your stomach pain been or, you know, have you been losing weight? If you think the answer that you would give is going to be different than the answer that your loved one will give, you probably better figure out ahead of time how you're going to get the real information mm. to the doctor. Because otherwise, I can't tell you how many times people actually do leave and things aren't resolved because of that reality. So you either have to decide ahead of time with your loved one through a careful, tactful, respectful conversation that you have a difference of opinion and you feel it would be important for both of you to be able to share your opinions. A lot of times you can then come to one unified answer to that question before you get to the doctor or nurse practitioner. That would be ideal. In some extreme situations, and Edith, with your work also with Alzheimer's disease, that's an example of an illness where you may actually not be able to come to an, uh, an agreement. And what your loved one may answer because they truthfully, their brain is telling them, no, I've been eating three meals a day. I have not lost any weight their brain is telling them that because it's got the disease of Alzheimer's disease. Whereas you know they haven't been eating three meals a day and they have lost weight. So if that's the case and you're aware of that, it may help. I was talking earlier about writing things down. It may help to write down your observation, but submit that to the doctor's office or the nurse practitioner ahead of time so that they are aware of the reality of the situation. And again, if they know you're the power of attorney, the advocate for this person, they'll typically understand that you're giving them truthful information that they need to use as they're making a decision about that individual. But doing that 
before you get to the appointment, at least I would say not long before though, the day before, or if you have a two o'clock appointment, the day of, that's when doctors and nurse practitioners review material about your visit is either the day before or day of. What's the best way to get that to them? Because email is not really something a doctor's office does. So that's a good question, Robin. And I'll, I'll say that there are some changes coming. So there are now in more practices what are called portals. And they do have an email. It's, it's sort of an internal email, if you will. Okay. And in some offices, that is a highly effective way to get information back and forth. You kind of have to know your office. And you can, it's a very legitimate question to ask the office, what's the best way to get a hold of nurse practitioner or the doctor after hours? You know, what, how, how would I best go about that? And every office will have a little difference of, of operation in that respect. So check out the portal. Uh, you're correct. Standard email is not as favored because of the lack of privacy. Right. The portal takes that out. Typically, it's already behind a login password situation. Separate from that, some offices will ask you to fax mm. information day of or day before and to put on top, this is for appointment tomorrow. As I mentioned, very often doctors and nurse practitioners are looking at things day before at most or day of would be the most typical. So getting it to that office in that short window of time. What I also recommend is the more important it is, the more you may want to then also make a good old-fashioned phone call mm. to the front office person and you know, politely ask, did you receive this fax? Could you please make sure so-and-so sees it. Could you go really old school and send a letter? You could. I, it, it really would depend on the office. I, would, I think that would be a, a harder item to track and make sure is, a, is accessible to the provider at gotcha. the time of the visit. You, you'd have to really sort of time that out. And, and the best, again, every office is different. And I tell my nurses who I work with that when we start having doctor's offices that we need to interact with, I always tell them, you need to find a best friend at that office. Yes. <laughs> and we all know our besties, you know, we can communicate with them whenever we need to. Right. So I'm, I'm being a little not I don't mean to be silly or unprofessional, mm -hmm. but Having a relationship, a good positive relationship with the front desk of the office that you're wanting to interact with, it allows you to work with that office more smoothly. So you're knowing and, and politely interacting with and, and you know, engaging with the person at that front desk can sometimes be the reason you know, your fax does get into the hands of the doctor. And I think you know, the more that happens, the more the front desk folks, you know, get some ability to feel engaged in the visits, too. And I think it would be helpful for them, too. Uh, they'd probably feel good about making that extra connection for you on the day of the visit, because most of them are very much wanting to, you know, connect people with the doctors. That's why they're there. So I, I, I think a little 
preparatory work on the relationship when you're a family caregiver can help because goodness knows you're juggling a lot. Yes. And if you're running late or if you have to do something last minute, again, there's often understanding on the other side when people know that you're being earnest and, and trying and doing it on behalf of your loved one. They're there for the same reasons. And right. so you can often find some better working relationships if you, you know, cultivate that a little bit. Again, so grateful for our conversation with Dr. Rosemary Laird. Thank you so much. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast, Informed Aging, and tell your family and friends about us too. Instagram and Twitter, you'll find us informed underscore aging on Facebook, facebook.com slash informed aging. If you need to reach us, you can email informedagingpodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode was recorded at Digital Broadcasting's podcast studio. That's all for now. Looking forward to our next visit.